Yeah, go ahead and turn to uh, Mark chapter 6. You guys aren't already there. Hopefully you, some of you still have your Mark journals. And yeah, we're going to be going through verses 14 to the, uh, let's see, verse 29. Mark, Gospel of Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 14, all the way to verse 29. Last week, uh, Sam uh, basically hit the topic of that basically God works primarily through the unimpressive ordinary. And that is so true. We're actually going to continue a little bit of that theme today, as you'll see in our passage. The context that we're in, uh, basically Jesus is, I think he's about a couple years into his ministry and his fame is spreading And uh, while his fame spreads, he's also dealing with rejection. Um, In the previous passage, Jesus was, uh, he went to his hometown in Nazareth. He was rejected there. Uh, He sent out the the apostles two by two. And now when we hit our story, we're dealing with kind of the continued theme of um, Jesus's fame going out and what that means for those who don't necessarily like him. So we'll continue that theme a little bit. Before we get a little bit too far, and before we pray, I just want to give you a verse just to kind of plant a seed for this passage. This is one of those passages where you could read it, and you could kind of doubt its, uh, its value, its value in reading it, let alone studying it or preaching it, spending 45 minutes really dwelling on it. But I just want to remind you, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed, by, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and rebuke and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God would be complete and equipped for every good work. So that includes passages like this where you might read it through and go, why is that in there? Or that's kind of brutal. Like, what's that all about? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. So my prayer today for, for myself and for you would be that it would serve that purpose, that you would be more equipped uh, for every good work that God has called you to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just are grateful that you've revealed yourself to us. That we don't have to wonder who you are, what your character is like, and what your world is all about, what living in your world is all about. God, thank you for your word and that it is living. I pray that you would equip your people today through it. And God, as I feel as though I have nothing to offer except your spirit within me and just confidence in you, God, use me as you see fit, as an empty vessel. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so yeah, turn to verse 14 of chapter 6 in Mark, if you haven't already. And let's read the um, first couple of verses. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. 
That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Who's Herod? Herod is, uh, is one of those names where it could refer to more than one person. This is Herod Antipas. This is actually the same Herod where Jesus would be called in by him at the very end of his, uh, close to where he's going to be crucified. He's called in by Herod and he basically says, oh great, Jesus, it's, it's great to finally meet you. What miracles are you going to perform for me? And he conspires with Pilate And in the end, we know the story, Jesus is crucified. This is Herod, um, who is a tetrarch, which basically means that he's a governor. Um, He's called Herod the king, or King Herod, not necessarily because he is a king, but that's kind of one of the titles that they had. They were were in charge of certain regions. Um, It it was King Herod in the same sense, where it's kind of like, uh, you guys remember Robin Hood, where you have Prince John, or he loved to call himself king. It was probably more like that, uh, probably more that kind of a king. Although there was a lot of power delegated to these uh, tetrarchs, and as you'll see, um, what they do with that, that power in this story. So a real quick background on the family tree of, of uh, the Herodian dynasty, okay? You have Herod the Great, who is our Herod's father, okay? You have Herod the Great. Herod the Great had four sons. Um, let's see if I can, I had to write these down. Aristobulus, Archelaus, Antipas, who is our Herod, and then Philip. So uh, we'll see a little bit as we go through this story why it's significant that we know who these brothers are. Because um, Aristobulus had a daughter, Her name was Herodias. And we'll see a little bit uh, as we get into this story who Herodias, how Herodias is related to this this scene here. Uh, It says that that word made it all the way to Herod. And so Herod was probably in the Judea area with his palace. And where we're at in Jesus' ministry is up in Galilee. In between Galilee and Judea in that area is uh, Samaria. And the distance between that is probably somewhere around Roseburg to Grants Pass. Um, so word got to him and he has a theory. There's a lot of theories going around of who Jesus is. And his theory is based on something that he did specifically to John the Baptist, which he said, whom I beheaded. Why is Herod a key figure? In this story, I think he's a key figure because Jesus, in Jesus' story, Jesus already escaped a Herod once before. This is Herod uh, Antipas's father, Herod the Great. When he heard that a Messiah was born, he slaughtered all the baby boys to try to make sure that nobody was going to rule over him. And so now it's Herod's, Herod the Great's son that we're dealing with here. But it also harkens forward to Jesus's, kind of as Jesus's ministry comes to a close, 
And as you look to Judea, you look to the rulers in Jerusalem, you know that that means Jesus is um, he's in trouble. His, his, uh, his fame is now turning into danger. So I think that's why it's connected. Let's keep reading. Verses 17 through 20. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Interesting. John's ministry had a profound effect wherever he went. So the effects of John's ministry, um, let's think about John for a second who he was. John was set apart by God from the womb before he was even born as a prophet who would prepare the way for the Messiah. He was, uh, he was one who was prophesied about in the Old Testament. He was prophesied about in the New Testament before he was born. If you wanted to turn there, Luke chapter 1 actually gets in a little bit of those prophecies I'll read you real quick, Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 14. This is what was prophesied about John. Chapter 1, verse 14 of Luke. And you will have joy and gladness and will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the, to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This was his ministry. This was his calling to prepare the way, to prepare God's people for the coming of the Lord and to turn their hearts back to God. A little bit, uh, skip a little bit ahead to verses 76 and 77 in chapter 1. And this is John's father prophesying about his son, John. He says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. I think uh, one of our impressions of John. Uh, is that he was just a preacher of condemnation, of law. Uh, You know, things coming out of his mouth like when the Pharisees came to be baptized, he said something like, how do you think that you're going to escape hell? Whoa. I I can't think of the last preacher I've heard turning away somebody that wanted to be baptized saying that. He was uh, He was bold. He was strange. He wore camel's hair. He ate locusts uh, for all of his meals. He was an interesting character, but his ministry 
was effective. The scriptures say very little negative about John. Matter of fact, Jesus himself said this about John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John preached Christ. John was a Christ-centered man. His life was all about Jesus. Now, granted, he was an old covenant prophet. There's a lot about the new covenant that he didn't understand, that it didn't quite fit for him. There was a certain amount of knowledge that he had about the Messiah, what he was going to be like. So he was missing some pieces, and John's disciples were, you know, missing a little bit of the picture. We see later in the book of Acts when one of John's disciples meets one of the apostles uh, and uh, basically just says, I've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So there are pieces here that are missing for him, but he was faithful. He was a faithful prophet of God. He said things about Jesus like he's, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He spoke and preached of, of the supremacy of Christ and himself as not even being worthy to untie his sandals. So he had a very profound effect on people around him. What was the effect that he had on these people? Well, as you see, we had Herodias that was angry and bitter at John. She was plotting continually to try to make sure that he was killed. Herod, his reaction to John was that he was just very perplexed and uh, unsettled about him. And it said that he feared John, knowing that he was a holy and righteous man. So he was, he was effective. So here's a, here's a note that I want to hit real quick. John was a preacher of righteousness and repentance. His baptism was a, was a baptism of repentance. We often think of repentance and those who call people to repentance as judgmental, as self-righteous. And I think that's the culture that we swim in. But if you understand God's character. And when he calls a prophet or he calls a man to preach repentance, we have to understand that it's mercy. It is God's mercy to put out a warning to those that are under his wrath and under his judgment to say, look, if you don't turn, if you don't turn from your sin and to Christ and put your trust in him, you're under his judgment. That's mercy. And that's what John's ministry looked like. So when John was continually telling Herod, look, you can't have your brother's wife. You can't do this. You got to stop. John wasn't, you know, standing outside of Herod's palace with a sign saying, God hates adulterers. He was having conversations with Herod. Somehow God opened the door to Herod and Herod was hearing him gladly. And he was saying, Herod, God's God's wrath is abiding on you. You gotta stop. And Herod was perplexed and he was taking it in. 
So another quick note. Maybe there's somebody here even today or that's listening online that for a while you've been hearing gladly the gospel like Herod. But you've fallen short of repentance like Herod. But let me just present this opportunity right now that God's grace is open and available and ready to receive you. If you would just recognize your need, that you are broken and you are fallen and that you have brought destruction on your life and you've been rejecting God and you can recognize that your sin has separated you from him, can you recognize your need for Jesus and just maybe even right now, I'm going to stop just hearing gladly. I'm going to put my faith in a Christ who finished the work of atoning for my sin and I'm going to stop, stop trusting in my own righteousness. Let me just lead you in a quick prayer if that's you. Father, I just confess my need for you. I will stop merely hearing and Lord, receive me as your son or your daughter. God, I pray that you would use this moment and this particular time right now in this message to save more and bring more into your kingdom. In the name of Jesus. Let's continue, verses 21 through 29. But an opportunity came. Pause right there, actually. <laughs> you remember Herodias? What, what was Herodias' problem? She was bitter at John for calling out, he was calling out their sin of adultery. And it bothered her to no end. So, so who do you think this opportunity is for? An opportunity came, let's keep reading. When Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to you, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She added that note. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Wow. Herodias, <clears throat> again, back to her. What a 
adulterous, venomous, and murderous woman. She was the one that was pushing and the driving force behind John's murder. But who is she? She's, remember, Aristobulus' daughter, okay? And Philip's wife. Who's Philip? The other brother. Philip married his niece. Then his niece, Herodias, was having an adulterous relationship with Herod Antipas. And that's the couple we're dealing with right now. So John, being just a faithful minister of God and calling these things out, is plotted against and murdered. And then then the daughter, she, you know, uh, Herodias puts out her own own daughter to to dance and, and please Herod. This is just a... It's a scene, isn't it? So looking at this story, remember when I said at the beginning, it's really easy to read this story and go, what's going on with this story? Like, is this really useful for studying and and preaching? (laughs) It is. It is very useful. But this, this passage didn't come with a commentary. It just told the story, Right? So we have to apply gospel truth to it. We have to apply the other Bible passages to it. We have to look at it within the lens of the whole counsel of God. And it's interesting because it's kind of, a, kind of like our life. Our lives don't come with a commentary. We could read the story of our life and go, that's kind of depressing. Like there's just stuff happening that just seems kind of random and Darkness and evil seems to kind of defeat us with sickness and sin and all kinds of junk around us. It just seems like we're defeated. It seems like when we look around and we we consider the stuff happening in our life, it's kind of dark and it gets depressing. But if we use our... uh, our discernment, and the whole counsel of God to read a passage like this. We won't be fooled. So don't be fooled by what you might read upon the first reading of this passage. Don't be fooled that Herod was happy in his, you know, security of his kingdom and his luxury and his love. Don't be fooled by the fact that Herod didn't think that he was going to be held accountable to God. Don't be fooled. Uh, Herod's love was not love. And he might have said that he was a man of love, right? I'm, I'm a, I'm, I just fell in love with Herodias. But that, I'm sorry, adultery does not make the list of love and neither does anything else that is not according to God's design. Don't be fooled when you look at John's life. Man, if you just read this passage, you'll think that John's life was a waste, that that he was pathetic, that he was weak. That is not at all the case. John's ministry was powerful. John was effective. John was faithful. Don't be fooled by looking at this story and thinking that John was ultimately defeated. He wasn't. 
So let's look at some passages of Scripture that tell us otherwise. Romans 8 is like one of the best. Let's uh, flip over there if you can with me. Let's look at Romans 8. Let's consider John's, not defeat, but John's victory. Let's consider that for a minute. Look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The sufferings that John experienced, this is not even worth comparing with the glory that John is going to see when he sees Jesus face to face. In a similar, uh, in the same context, you skip a little bit forward to verse 31. It says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? And here here it is. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword, which is what John got. John got the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Isn't that John? Like a sheep to be slaughtered? But listen to verse 37. This is a big fat N-O. No, in all these things we are, excuse me, More than conquerors through him who loved us. That more than conquerors is like the the language that we have doesn't quite get it, doesn't quite cut it. It's like we are super conquerors. We're like mega conquerors. We're like ultra conquerors. Like I don't know what else, what, what, what other language I could pull in to try to capture this. But why? Why does it say that we are more than conquerors? Why? Keep reading. For, you see that word for, that's usually the answer. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God In Christ Jesus our Lord. John's head was separated from his body. But John wasn't separated from Christ. Let's keep keep running with this, you guys. Let's keep going. What does this mean? This means that all those things that are just list, listed, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, those are not ultimate defeat. What is ultimate defeat? What is the worst possible loss that we could ever experience? Separation from Christ. 
That is the worst thing that could happen to us. So what is the best thing that we have? Christ, that we cannot lose when we are in him. Christ. This is huge. Jump over to Revelation chapter 2. In the church, in the letters to the churches, at the end of each letter, um, the Holy Spirit speaks. He says these, this phrase in, in each, each letter. It says, to the one who conquers, I will give. So he, one who conquers, I will give this, I will give that. Now, so I'm going to read you one in the end of the church of Smyrna. I think this relates to our passage today. It says, do not fear. This is verse 10, chapter 2 of Revelation. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Second death is basically separation from Christ eternally. Jump, still in Revelation, jump over to chapter 12. This is good stuff, you guys. In chapter 12, we're given a vision of Satan being conquered. He's being thrown down. He's being defeated. And then you hear voices from heaven say this in verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Listen to this. And they have conquered him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. How do we conquer? Through the blood of Christ and the word of our testimony. The blood of Christ, how does that conquer Satan? Because Satan comes to accuse us and says, look at that piece of garbage. Look at that sinner. You're going to accept him, her, after all that they've done? And Jesus says, I've paid it all for them. My blood was shed so that they would be justified and washed as if they they were in complete innocence. Given the righteousness, not just forgiven, of our sin, but given the righteousness of Christ through his work on the cross and through the word of our testimony, that means that we just continue. We continue to declare that God has shown his grace to us and we don't stop and we don't recant and we don't, you know, take it back and we don't forsake our confession. So we have, so uh, let's, go, let's go back actually to that Romans passage. We're going to finish off here. 
Remember in verse 37 where it said, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors? We all have these things. Every single one of you here today has a list of these things. And the one thing that I want to point out is that it says in all these things, you're more than conquerors. It doesn't say from all these things. It doesn't say that as soon as you see tribulation coming, he delivers you out of it, and that's what makes you a conqueror. And as soon as you see distress, he delivers you out of it, and that's what makes you a conqueror. No, no, in those things, we are more than conquerors. God did not deliver John from beheading, but in his death, he was a more than a conqueror. Why? Because those things didn't have the power to separate him from Christ. And so for you and me, you have a list of these things that sure feel depressing and dark and like defeat. But ask the question, do they have the power to separate you from Christ? We have similar dealings that John had with with people just in the world of people angry with us, bitter at us, maybe even plots against us. We're going to deal with people that are unsettled in their conscience as they deal with us, maybe even a little bit of fear as they deal with us because we have the Holy Spirit and and the presence of Jesus is kind of unsettling to people. They don't know what to do with Christians. They might be confused. They might reject you. Matter of fact, Jesus said, if they reject me, they will reject you. But do any of those things have the power to, remo- to separate us from Christ? Similarly, in just the broken state that we live in in creation, we have all kinds of things like disasters, Sickness, food supply running low, just weakness, old age, things like your body just not working like it used to. We have depression and loneliness and mental decline. We have all kinds of these these things that that we deal with. And I want you to walk away today with the question, knowing that it's a for sure N-O, it does not have the power to separate you from Christ. Because that is the most important question to ask. And when you have that assurance, you can continue to rejoice. You can continue to not fear, remain faithful like John did, not give up and to not be discouraged. I can think of at least a couple things in my life where I look at it and I go, man, I was really fighting to keep that or fighting to make this thing happen. And I have these expectations. And then it's like defeat. 
it didn't go the way I wanted it to go or didn't go the way I, I thought or even that I prayed for. You think people were praying for John to be delivered out of prison and not beheaded? I think so. In those situations, it's a good reminder that John and we are not separated from Christ. I want to share with you a song that my brother Steve shared with me the other day, and I've just been putting on repeat. I love it. It's a song by David Crowder. It's called Crushing Snakes. I think I'm going to stand up for this. This is, this is good. It says, we're not afraid. Terrors of night, arrows that fly by day. 10,000 may fall, but we, we will remain. We're not afraid. A promise of God can never be torn away. Walking on hands of angels, crushing snakes. Safe under the shadow of his wings. Our fortress and our strength. I really encourage you to go listen to this song. It's called Crushing Snakes. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead to the, the bridge because this is good. It says, do you see him, king of heaven, champion of all creation, eyes of fire, voice of thunder, tearing through the sky in wonder, dressed in light, we see him coming on a horse that's white like lightning, breaking through the darkness. Do you see him do you see him? And that's my question, Christian, today. Do you see him? Do you see him in your times of brokenness and defeat? See him. See him victorious. See him victorious over the cross. See him victorious over death. Victorious on your behalf. Risen from the dead. And going before you from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, victorious, conquering. And if he conquered, you conquer. Amen. So I want you to see him when you have run into your list of these things. Because in those things, we are ultra conquerors. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, Father, you are so good. You are so good to take us in our weakness, to take us in our, our lacking, in our limited view of our life, in our limited view of our situation. And the times when we look at our life and we want to fear and we want to give up and we want to be discouraged because we just feel like we're so overcome and defeated. God, would you, by your spirit, and by your word, and by the power of the gospel, would you raise up the brokenhearted? Lord, would you raise up those who are discouraged even right now? Those who have looked at these situations that have happened in their life, maybe death has happened, maybe literal death like we've seen in our story. Maybe it's just been a situation that you can't see past. God, would you help them to see you clearly, to see your face, your victorious shining face and delight themselves in you and be revived 
and have a renewed joy in you. God, would, would you fuel fearlessness and boldness in your people today with just joy to just be ready to open their mouths and proclaim the gospel, the good news, fearlessly to the world around them, but not carelessly, with compassionate warnings. May they see the world around them with your eyes. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.